This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by The Good Book Company, publisher of The Unwavering Pastor by Jonathan Dotson. This book offers help for pastors and ministry leaders to guide churches through divisions and to experience renewal in the heartache of ministry. Enter the promo code UNWAVER to get 25% off at thegoodbook.com. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a panel discussion with Brett McCracken, Sam Albury, and Trevin Wax. This panel was originally held at TGC's 2021 National Conference. Hello, thanks so much for being here. Um, I'm just going to introduce each of us briefly and then we'll get into it because there's a lot to cover with this topic and not a lot of time. Um, My name is Brett McCracken. I'm a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition. Um, I'm also the author of a few books, most recently The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. Um, To my left is Sam Albury. Um, He is a good friend, a great guy. He's a pastor, Emmanuel Nashville Church a globe-trotting apologist, and just a great thinker, um, especially on this issue of sexuality. His books have been so invaluable for me. Um, his little book, Is God Anti-Gay?, is something that I recommend all the time when people ask me for what's the best short resource I can give on this topic. So that's a great book, Seven Myths About Singleness, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With?, and What, does, what God Has to Say About Our Bodies, which is coming out in June pretty soon. So that's, that's Sam Albury. And then Trevin Wax, he's general editor of the Gospel Project at Lifeway Christian Resources. Trevin is also just a great thinker about culture and Christianity. Um, he has a great uh, column at the Gospel Coalition website that I'm just always so impressed with the volume of really high quality articles that he produces. And he's written a number of great books, most recently, Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In. And then the multi-directional leader responding wisely to challenges from every side, which is one of the free books that you will receive uh, if you are a TGC 21 attendee. So uh, I want to start just by telling a story just from my own experience that I think gets at a little bit of the lay of the land in our post-Christian culture right now with sexuality. I was at a coffee shop. I, I live in Southern California, which California is... You know, it lives up to its reputation of being kind of the avant-garde in, um, in all things, but especially sexuality and sexual ethics. 
I was at a coffee shop with um, a couple of guys from my church, younger guys, and we were just having a conversation. And one of them works in Hollywood. He's an actor. And uh, he was telling me just about how afraid he is of kind of outing himself as a Christian in Hollywood, just as a Christian who believes what the Bible says about sexual ethics. He, he believes cancel culture you know, could end his career before it really gets started. And so we were talking about that and talking about the reality of how, especially in LA and in Hollywood, you work in certain industries, you really can't say too loudly what you actually believe, you know, you, if you said, you know, that if you, if you didn't kind of toe the, the party line uh, on sexual ethics from Hollywood's point of view, you, you're kind of blacklisted. And what was interesting about this conversation is as we were having it, and, you know, sometimes when you're having conversations in public spaces, in coffee shops, you wonder, like, what people are overhearing. And so all of a sudden, this person to our, just like five feet away, I guess he had been listening in, he like stands up in a fury, in a huff, and he comes up to us and says, I cannot listen to this. This is the most hateful thing, and I have to leave. And so he just got his bag and left. And we were all just like, what did we say? Like, I didn't think we were saying anything, you know, overly hateful. We were just talking about this real experience this, um, this kid who's an actor in Hollywood who's a Christian is having. But it just struck me, like, this is... This is the lay of the land we're in. The, this is the hostility that even a stranger who overhears Christians saying out loud kind of what their beliefs are, they can't even, it can't be tolerated. They can't even be near it. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe just to get started, we can talk about the, the big picture of like the culture and where we're at. Because I do think even in the last few months, we've entered maybe a new era in the U.S. with regard to sexuality and the Equality Act. Many of you have probably heard about that. It's looking like it's, I think it's already passed in the Senate or in the House and it's being voted on in the Senate. There's a, uh, the Assistant Secretary of Health in the U.S. is a transgender woman, Rachel Levine. So that's a first. Um, and it's interesting that a transgender woman is kind of in charge of health, public health, which says a lot about where we're at as a culture and I came across this Gallup survey, um, which was really just startling, that one in 10, 9.1% of millennials, now identify as LGBTQ, and for Gen Z, it's up to 16%. One in six identify as LGBTQ, and that, I don't know what the stats were 10 years ago, but they were significantly lower than that. So there's this rapid progression happening. Um, so I just want to ask you guys, just to start, um, where do you see this going in the next five to ten years, and how can Christians prepare? What should we be talking about, thinking about? Um, yeah, just any initial thoughts from you guys. And I will also say we were supposed to have our good friend Rebecca McLaughlin on this panel. She had to go home a bit early. Her plans were uh, sadly had to change, so we miss her perspective. Check out her books and her articles, though, because she's a great voice on this. But it's great to be with you, too. So... Anyone want to say anything? I'll have a go. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Um, in terms of where we're going, it's, I, <laughs> you know, back in 2016, I remember thinking, okay, I think this is where things are going to go, and I was completely wrong. And so I'm sort of now nervous of making predictions. One of the things I'm, I'm beginning to see is, I think, 
Western culture, I'm thinking largely US and UK where I'm from, things are moving quickly but in more than one direction at the same time. And so whilst there is the, the very trend you just mentioned, um, I'm also seeing at the same time something of a fairly worldly reaction to that very trend as well. Um, we're seeing more indications of anti-trans um, kind of things, anti-LGBT as a general type things. I think we're going to see more of an ugly response to the trend that you've mentioned alongside the trend itself continuing. And I think one of the challenges that will give us as Christians is how do we not be with those guys without looking like we're with these ones? And making sure that our own um, questions, concerns, disagreements are not seen to be siding with what I think is going to be a very aggressive and, and godless reaction to those things. So being willing to to critique both of those trends as we as we see them. So it, that may make life a little bit lonelier, actually, because I think each side is going to assume if you're not fully with us, you must be with, with the others. Yeah. So we'll get caught in the middle, I think, and I think we're just going to have to to live with that. I, I, I'm like Sam, I, I'm always a little skeptical when anyone says exactly how things are going to play out in the next five to 10 years, because there really is no inevitable trend toward anything if you believe in a sovereign God who upsets and upends trends all the time. So where the, I, some of the signs that Sam is talking about where, where there's been something of a backlash uh, when it comes to um, the, there, there's a, with, with the, the transgender uh, uh, subject in particular, uh, those theories require an ontological shift, an actual shift in a, it, its overall cosmology, which the whole LGBTQ conversation requires that as well if we're discussing marriage and, and other things. If you can see it back there, it's actually a, a different cosmology that's at, that's at root. Um, and, but but the, the, the transgender one is one that feels immediately more costly to, to ordinary people. So the, the question about um, women's sports, for example, and, and things like, there's going to be a lot of, I think there will be a lot of conversation about that in the next few years. And like Sam said, some of it is not going to, it, it's going to be a worldly pushback. So it won't be, there won't be the fragrance of Christ with that. Um, and I think that's one of the areas where, where Christians will need to stand out both from the LGBTQ push, but as well, from, from some of that backlash will not uh, be the way that, that Christ would, would have responded. So, uh, so that, that's a, that is something for, for sure that I think we will, we will be wrestling with. But the, the bigger issues that we, that we face as a society and we face in our churches, I think, is that because of this shift at the worldview level cosmologically, we are going to have to start way back in our discussions of, in our discipleship efforts at, um, we should just go ahead and expect that the young people growing up in our churches will not know why we believe what we believe about marriage, um, about sexuality. It will, there, there, it is unlikely to make sense and for there to be a plausibility around it because of the new environment that you're seeing with some of those polls, the sort of sexual fluidity and we can point out the incoherence and the inconsistency all day long in the, in, in the, in the sexual revolution. It's, 
it's all over the place. I mean, if you really look for it, and we could get into that a little bit later, maybe in the conversation, but um, people live with incoherence and inconsistencies in their worldview all the time. So just pointing those out won't necessarily change minds. But I think from a discipleship standpoint, it's going to be really important for us to do two things, to assume and not be surprised when young people growing up at our congregations and in our families um, have questions and don't understand exactly where we're even coming from as we present a biblical worldview. But then uh, secondly, helping our own kids navigate how do I respond to people who have fundamental irreconcilable differences with that perspective and what it's going to look like for them to hold to that perspective in a world that's increasingly um, hostile to, to that view. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, well, I think Trevin's absolutely right about the, um, there's issues behind the issues here that need to be addressed because I have a lot of contacts with Christian higher ed and my wife works at a Christian college in Southern California and just seeing the internal kind of shifts that have happened with just students today versus 10 years ago. They're, they're just being shaped in a culture where it's unthinkable to be against you know, any and every sexual expression. So, so what are the issues behind the issues? And I think one of them you've written about quite a bit, Trevin, is just the concept of the self and how um, really the one of the core ideas here is that, that we have a self idea, an idea of ourself that should be, we should be free to express it however we, whatever truth that is, right? We should be able to freely express it. And these days, your sexuality is, very much bound up within that. Somewhere along the road, your sexual expression and what you do with your body became fundamentally, fundamental to your selfhood. And so any um, rule, any sort of external institution that put, tries to put boundaries around that is seen as the most hateful possible thing because it's, it's a denial of your selfhood and an, an immutable, supposedly, part of your selfhood. So how do we counter that idea? Because if that's what we believe about the self, that your sexuality is fundamentally who you are, then it, 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 it is a horrible, hateful thing to try to put constrictions around that. Yeah, I, I was a, a guy I've known for several years, recently kind of came out on, on Instagram, and it was interesting looking at the, the various comments and responses people made. Almost all of them were... Um, along the lines of, thank you for sharing your truth. Um, it wasn't even, you know, thank you for sharing your, your feelings or your, your identity, or it was your truth. And if, you know, earlier generations, I think, therefore I am, we seem to be, I sexually feel, therefore I am, that seems to be the sort of grounding of our sense of what it means to be a person. And so, thank you for sharing your truth, was exactly right within that framework of thinking. That's the sort of the primary starting point for so many people. And I think as we try and understand that and unpick that a bit, we've, we've, got, to have, we've got to have a better vision of what it means to be a human. If we, we, we can't simply evangelize through negation and saying, no, no, that's wrong. Um, and so trying to show people actually Where's the partial truth? The partial truth is, you know, human sexuality is a, is a very distinct telling part of what it means to be human, whilst also saying there's so much more to you than just 
your sexual feelings and the, the type of person you feel attracted to and trying to give people a, a more dignified rounded view of, of what it means to be a human being I think is I'm, that's something I'm trying to do yeah, the, um, the, the whole question about the self is, is one of these deeper questions that sexuality has now been mapped onto. So one of the challenges that we face, I think, in the church is if, if, we, are, if we are in congregations where many people in our society believe the purpose of life, if you look at the surveys, including those who go to our churches, they believe the purpose of life is to um, uh, look deep within themselves to discover their deepest desires and then to look around to dis express themselves to the world. That, I mean, you see the surveys, you know, call it expressive individualism or whatever you want to call it. Uh, in, in Rethink Yourself, my book, I, I say it's the look-in approach to life. You determine who you are, you define your destiny, your identity. Um, there are a lot of people who would not identify as gay who still believe that. And one of the challenges that we face in the church, I think, is if we basically allow that sort of mindset and view to run rampant in our congregations or to go unaddressed, um, and then we suddenly call out sexuality, we're being arbitrary. Um, I, I was, I, you're talking about Christian college. I was talking to a professor from, from a Christian college on the West Coast who, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, who said um, that one of their more mature Christian students who's like been on mission trips, believes the Bible, you know, uh, was saying was sharing why she found it hard to share the gospel with a gay friend of hers because she said, "I just," she's like, "I don't know. I, it feels like too much to you know for for me to for for me to say you know Jesus asked them to give up their identity." And I thought, Jesus asks all of us to give up our identity. <laughs> and to rediscover it in him, right? Like whoever would lose their life will gain it. Those who would hold on to their life will lose it. Like they, this is like the fundamental understanding of conversion and repentance and what it actually means to follow Christ for everybody, not just for, um, again, but the fact that someone who actually has Bible knowledge yet was still, was, was feeling like that was asking too much is an indication that we um, have perhaps not been as clear as we need to be on the overarching cost of discipleship um, in, in, our, in our society. So the, the questions about the self that are underneath the sexuality debate, um, those are issues and challenges that we face in our congregations, whether or not you actually are dealing with anyone who uh, is, is, is uh, uh, acknowledging same-sex attraction or is uh, um, struggling with gender dysphoria or, or something to that effect. Those issues of the self are the bigger ones, and they're mapped on, that sexuality is now mapped on to, to that. I'll just add two quick things. That Trevin's book is excellent. Um, Rethink Yourself. It's, it's such a, a clear way through this. And actually, at, at a level, you could use what Trevin is saying in his book to explain this to young children about how you understand who you are. Um, so that's one thing, just to commend that book. The other thing I, I think in the light of all this is... In, in earlier times, in earlier, you know, generations, we were living in a, a more of a moralistic framework. And one of the, the sort of tasks in evangelism was to try to show people, actually, you're a sinner. Um, so all these people who think they're good people, got to show them they're sinners so that they then realize they need their need for Christ. And a lot of our evangelism began in Genesis 3. We have to begin in Genesis 1. We don't live in a moralistic age where we need to prove people 
to be sinners. We live in an anxious age where we need to prove to people they're worth something. And start with Genesis, start with this, this high view of humanity and the, the unique dignity God gives us as his image bearers and begin to, to cast a vision of what it looks like and means to be a human being that actually, in the light of which our culture's understanding will then appear very shriveled and actually dehumanizing. That's a good segue to a question I wanted to ask, which is what are the unexpected opportunities for the church in this landscape? You hinted at the, the kind of beauty of the dignity of humanity that scripture provides us in a dehumanized age. Um, that's, that's an opportunity for us to really pinpoint that. Another one that I was thinking about, Trevin, as you were talking, is the, the actual beauty of self-denial I'm kind of an advocate for like, let's make self-denial cool again. <laughs> um, my book, Uncomfortable, was kind of all about that. And I think it's true, though, because if once you get to this libertine critical mass in a culture where everything is okay and following your heart to wherever it leads is the, the way, it just doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead, it's not the answer people are looking for. And there's lots of stories that I've been reading about people who have been on you know, transgender journeys and have gone through surgeries and, and they don't become happier. You know, most of the accounts you read, like they think that's going to solve their anxiety and their mental health and all their challenges that they're facing, but it doesn't. And it just shows you that these, all these things we do to kind of find happiness by looking within ourselves and following our heart don't actually lead to happiness. So maybe there's something to boundaries and kind of external guardrails that is good and denying yourself as a, as a path to flourishing. Yes, and particular boundaries, um, not just, you know, find someone somewhere to give you constraints in your life, but actually what we, what we know as believers is that as we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, as we lose life, for him, we, we receive life. Um, one of the beautiful things in Christian discipleship is as we deny self, we don't become less who we are. As we deny self and follow Jesus, we actually become more the people God made us to be in the first place. Um, if, if you take just the three of us as a starting point and each of us denies ourselves and seeks to become more like Jesus, we'll all become more like Jesus without becoming more like each other. Um, we will actually become the people God thought up in the first place. So follow, follow your heart won't get us very far. Follow his heart will actually get us to where we truly are. So and I, I don't think we always articulate the, the positives in, the, in that process. We, That's I don't think we sufficiently articulate the negatives either, but yeah. we, we must point people to the positives as well. You, you asked about the opportunity yeah. too in that. Um, the, so there is an opportunity to reclaim the whole self conversation with, with uh, what Sam just said, that you are more like yourself and more like Jesus. That's ultimately where we're all headed. Those of us that believe what the glorified state's going to be like. But when it comes to, to, to sex in, in general, our culture is trying to have it both ways. Sex is nothing, sex is everything, right? Sex is nothing. It's all casual, it's recreational, as long as it's consensual, that's really the only constrictions around it, and how dare anyone say that 
that's not fine. Um, it's it's really nothing, right? It's it's um, uh, it's you know pleasurable and all that, that's that's what it is. But then at the same time, sex is everything. It's my identity. How dare you question or my my choices in this in in my behaviors or my uh, uh, attractions because this is who I am. So our culture is trying to have that in 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 both ways. And what I think the opportunity for the church is is to actually speak a prophetic word that counters both of those wrong assumptions. We believe sex is important, that it is something, it's not nothing. That's why there are restrictions around it, boundaries around it, because of something beautiful and precious that it is. But at the same time, we also don't believe it's everything. It's not the end all of life. It's not the, the uh, um, it's not even, I mean, think about the, the um, people throughout human history uh, who have uh, demonstrated a, an amazing sense of human flourishing that have you know, never been sexually active at all, or like that we don't, uh, this is something that comes through in all wings of the Christian church, uh, and has for millennia. So, uh, there is a, um, as, as Christians, we have the opportunity to raise sexuality away from the sort of it's nothing casual sex is fine. As long as it's consensual to, to raise the, the value of what the sex is and to show the preciousness of it while at the same time demoting it from those who would make it their sole identity or, or would find their identity intertwined with it to an extent that actually reduces them as a human being. It's reductionistic to define yourself in your most fundamental being by sexuality. That's actually a reductionistic uh, part of the uh, a vision of humanity that the Bible actually gives us a better and uh, um, a stronger uh, sense of the value and worth of humanity that transcends anything, anything like that. So I, I do think we have an opportunity to stand out um, in in this environment, but it will be, it will be a challenge. And I wonder what other challenges you you see, Brett, as well on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge, honestly, is just the navigating between compassion and truth. I think for most young Christians, that's what they struggle with because most of them, even my generation, like most of us have friends, close friends who are LGBT. And it's like, how do you balance faithfulness to the gospel and scripture, but also compassion, especially in a culture where compassion can only look like one thing, full acceptance and affirmation. So what, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Like, what would you say to young, young Christians, particularly who are in classrooms with LGBT friends and who are struggling with how do I live a witness of faithfulness to God's truth on this without just being completely, you know, coming across as hateful? I think it's very, very challenging. And um, I mean, we can avoid obvious mistakes like, we, you know, don't be a jerk will help, obviously. Um, Good place to start. But the fact is, even if you were to say all the right things in the very best kind of way and at the right wise kind of moments, you may still be written off as hateful. Um, and so part of, part of discipleship, I think, in this area is not that we're looking for rejection or we're looking for trouble, but we're, we may need to hold lightly to how we're seen by other people. And that may include by the people who employ us in some cases. And to be hold, hold those things loosely, not because we 
don't care about them, but because we're, we're prepared for the Lord's sake for him to take them from us, if that, if that is what being faithful to him entails. Not wanting that, not looking for it, not trying to provoke it, um, but being willing to be rejected. Um, you know, if, if Jesus was rejected and perfectly embodied grace and truth um, and was still rejected for it, then we, we mustn't think, well, as long as I kind of am gracious and, and get things right, then it'll all work out fine. It might not. And actually, sometimes that is part of the, the longer-term plan for how the gospel is going to be fruitful, is, is that there may be seasons of, of rejection and difficulty, whilst at the same time not being pessimistic. <laughs> because however bewildering this, this cultural environment may be for us, God's not freaking out. Um, Jesus is still on his throne. His word is still powerful. The gospel is still transforming lives. And I think part of how we respond is, even if people are rejecting us, we're not rejecting them. And making it as easy as possible and non-embarrassing as possible for, for people to come back to us anytime that they feel like they can. Yeah, I, I want to tell a quick story about our friend Beckett Cook, who I think some of us know, because I think that what you're just saying is so true. You know, if we're just faithfully living as Christians, you're not ashamed of what the Bible teaches on sexuality, but not like publicly, you know, shouting it with a megaphone either, but waiting for people to come to us um, who have gone down that long road of look within and found, found it unsatisfying. So this guy, Beckett Cook, some of you might have seen or heard about his story he i interviewed him for the gospel coalition a few years ago and he told this story and um it's a fun story because it's a coffee shop story like the one I, I told at the beginning he was at a coffee shop so he he was a gay man living in hollywood living kind of the excess of all things hollywood knew everyone in hollywood all the actors he was a production designer um he was yeah just living a very hedonistic um you know, life as a gay man in Hollywood. And he was in Paris for Fashion Week. And he, the way he described it is he just like, he came to this existential crisis where he, he just knew this was empty. There was emptiness here. And that he, there, was, there had to be something more. And he came back to LA after that trip just with a really soft heart um, to, to something more. And he was at a coffee shop, Intelligentsia Coffee in Silver Lake, which I actually love. And I go there a lot. And we, I did my interview with Beckett in, in this coffee shop. So it was fun to hear him tell this story, which is kind of his conversion story, which was catalyzed in this coffee shop in Silver Lake. So he was just sitting there having coffee, and he saw a group of Christians um, with their Bibles open, having a Bible study, just faithfully present in public, reading their Bibles. And it was enough for him to kind of be curious, like, this is Silver Lake, this is like a hipster, very secular part of L.A., there's some Christians here with their Bibles open. So he just asks them, you know, who are you? Like, what are you doing? And then he starts engaging in conversation with them. And in that first conversation, I believe he asked them, like, look, I have to know, what do you believe about being gay? Because I'm gay. And to these Christians' credit, they were, they were at Reality Church in L.A. They, they didn't shrink back from it. And... <laughs> They were honest with the hard answer that they knew would be really hard for Beckett to hear. But 
Beckett heard it and respected them for being honest, and they invited him to church, and he came to church that Sunday to Reality LA in Hollywood, and he was converted. He became a Christian and turned away from his, his gay lifestyle completely. And he, he, in his words, he's never looked back. It's, you know, totally behind him. And I think that's just such a powerful story of how we as Christians, one way we can approach this is just by being faithful, being willing to answer questions honestly, and seeing what God does with it. And um, like you were saying, just wait for the Holy Spirit to move people towards you. Um, and don't be a jerk. I, I think that I, lo- I love that story because it rem- it's also it, such a key thing. Do I think one of the questions we all have to wrestle with as as people in this particular moment is, do we truly believe in the power of the gospel to change, to change people, uh, and and to to, uh, to 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 change lives in ways that are uh, that 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 have. Uh, that are in all kind in all kinds of different immorality. I, I mean, I, I was reading an article not that long ago about, uh, you know, the, the question that many pastors and church leaders, many of you in this room, have had this conversation with, you know, couples in the congregation that are cohabit, you know, already living together before they're married, and having to have the conversation. But I mean, even aside from the LGBT LGBT conversation, there there are hard questions and hard things about sexuality in just in general, and that this in a permissive culture like the one that we're in, that we will, we will have to have. I think the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we really believe in the power of the gospel? Do we really also believe in the beauty of Christian truth, God's revealed truth about human sexuality, the human person, and the human body, even? I think those are our are, are key things. Do we believe in the goodness, the fundamental goodness of what has been revealed in Scripture on this? I sense in a lot of circles that um, an almost a, a sort of sheepish, almost an apologetic, well, I have to believe this because the Bible teaches it, but almost to where you're granting that it may not be great when, when confronted about this. And I, I've even seen it, you know, in, in, in circles where there's a, a lot of anxiety and angst around this. And I think, the, I think the motivation that some pastors want to show or some church leaders or even Christians that are speaking to this issue, they want to show that you know, they're wrestling with this too and that this is hard for them as well to talk about it. And almost as a way of showing this um, uh, you know, authenticity of wrestling with the hard passages of Scripture. And, and I get that impulse, the, the impulse of wanting to say, hey, I... I understand your objection. I feel the weight of your objection. I understand that impulse. But ultimately, I don't think that that's actually as attractive to the world as someone who, with winsomeness, uh, with confidence, will, will acknowledge what it is that they believe, but, but not with a sort of angsty, anxious, ah, I know this is so tough, this is so hard, but, but almost a recognition that acknowledges that it may be tough, but that actually believes at the end of the day and gives off that, that impression that this is fundamentally true and it's fundamentally good for the world. I was just going to add to that. I mean, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I don't think people are going to care whether what we say is true if they don't believe it's good. One, one other component in this, going back to the, the particular question, is, is obviously the church. The church if we're doing church in a, in a healthy way, should be 
an embodied answer to that whole predicament of, well, how can you love someone without affirming them? Because church actually should be a community of people where there isn't unconditional affirmation, but where there is a depth of love and commitment that actually we don't see anywhere else. So I'm, I'm hoping that actually that, that dimension, I think, will be key to all of this as well. It's a, a form of community where, yeah, people are not going to agree and think everything you do and say and, and think is, is amazing. And actually, and it's an expression of love, not an expression of rejection when we, when we challenge each other. Yeah, that's, that's a good segue to, uh, I want to get practical just with some time we have left for church ministry and pastors and leaders in actual churches, because more and more there are people in our congregations who are struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria or just any number of things related to sexuality. So what do you recommend for just approaching, how do you disciple these people? What's the best approach to loving them? you know, um, not affirming everything that they might want to be affirmed. But um, yeah, what, what have you seen? Just maybe any personal examples that's worked well um, to kind of move someone towards Jesus who's dealing with these issues and not to turn them away. Um, I think for me, one of the things I've I found helpful both on the receiving end as someone being discipled, but also then as I've sought to commend Christ to others, is, is constantly showing how Jesus puts us all in the same boat. Um, some of the harder things we, we find in Scripture, I think we, we receive more easily when we realize we're not the only people who are being challenged by, by Jesus. So often if I'm, if I'm talking to LGBT folks for the first time, my, my rule of thumb is don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. So I want people to see how the, the, the challenge of the gospel lands on all of us, even in the area just of, of sexual ethics. What Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, if we understand him rightly, deeply challenges every single one of us. And then I think if people can see, can see that as being a sort of a universal thing, the particular ways in which it may challenge them individually become easier to receive. Otherwise, they feel like, well, I'm being singled out and treated differently to everybody else. So going back to the, the point earlier about the cost of discipleship being something that is, is visible everywhere, I think will help us on that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think one of the reasons why the church has lost a lot of credibility on this topic is because we haven't. We've singled out certain sins that we are asking people to deny themselves about where we've looked the other way with things like cohabiting before marriage and other many other things. So I feel, I feel like that has to figure into the church's witness going forward is an equal opportunity kind of call to self-denial. Again, make self-denial cool again, make it beautiful again. For all of us, we're in this together as Christians and the cost of discipleship is a beautiful unifying thing. Yeah, I think we've, we've realized the spirit has come to convict of sin, and the danger is we feel very, very convicted about other people's sins. And it's very easy within a given church context to, to excuse the majority sins yeah. and to focus on the minority sins, particularly when it comes to sexual ethics. And, and along those lines, Jesus' harshest words were for Pharisees, 
not for repentant sinners. So I think if the, the way of Jesus is, as we discuss issues like this, even in our own congregation, it's, it's to, to, to certainly to, to stand on the truth of God's word that's unchanging. Have you not heard it said from the beginning, right? But at the same time, there's the, uh, uh, a, the, the extended arm is there, even if it's met with hostility, the extended arm of, of, of Christ is there. That's the, the, the beauty of the gospel, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think recognizing that we're all in the same boat is, is obviously very important. And it, it also, um, you know, in the kind of culture that we live in right now, one of, the, one of the things that I think is important to remember is that the, the first and greatest commandment is to be true to yourself, right? And then the second is like it, to affirm whatever self your neighbor decides to be true to. Um, you've got to understand that when you challenge both of those commandments, you are the sinner in the eyes of the culture. And scripturally, biblically speaking, we know that the response to sin is repentance. But in the kind of culture where be true to yourself is the greatest commandment, the response to you know, uh, the challenge to your identity is reassertion. So we have a fundamental difference in the way that we're even viewing the world where we see repentance as, yes, it is self-denial and it's cool in a lot of ways, but the repentance rightly understood is not the prophet just holding the sign, repent or turn or burn, that kind of thing. It's actually a refreshing thing because you're actually inviting someone to turn from one path to another. And it's the, the, the call to repentance is not, is not a negative thing. There's a negative in service of a positive joy on the other side of that repentance. The, the turning around is transformation. And so recapturing the beauty and the need and the, the, the understanding of repentance, not merely for sexual sins, not merely for these kinds of sexual sins, but that, that's the, the beauty of the Christian life. Martin Luther was the one who said all of the Christian life is, uh, is, is summed up in repentance, that this is what this looks like. And, you know, in Romania, uh, where I did mission work, the Christians there, the evangelicals, were known as pokaitsi, repenters. That's how we were known. We are the people who are repenting, repenting. And I, want, I do think that that brand label, if we were to be known for repenting ourselves uh, of all sorts of things, as much as we were also known for calling others, inviting others into this way of repentance, I think that would transform some of these conversations. That's a good word. Absolutely. I, I, in, in California, in my circles of secular friends, that's the real sticking point. They're not going to listen to evangelicals on sexual ethics if we're total hypocrites in looking the other way with all sorts of things in politics and whatever um, in terms of immorality that doesn't register for us. But LGBT immorality is a big deal, supposedly. So Consistency is huge. Repentance is huge. Sam, any final thoughts from you? We have just a couple minutes left. I just think of a line I heard Ray Orland say once, which is that the church shouldn't expect to see repentance in the world before the world is seeing repentance in the church. So if we're, if we're modeling the very kind of repentance we're talking about, I was struck by that comment about the Romanian situation and the gospel gives us a certain posture, doesn't it? Whereas I think the, the, the thinking of the culture, that, as we've expressed it so far, 
gives a very different kind of posture. It's a very aggressive, assertive, refusing to, to be wrong kind of posture. I think a, a gospel-shaped posture that is, is humbled and joyous at the same time will itself be quite compelling. People might not like what we're saying, but they'll be intrigued by what we're believing is, is doing to us as people. Yeah, I think, I think in closing, I would just kind of summarize with both of my coffee shop examples um, that we're called to live faithfully on this issue as Christians and faithfully in public. This shouldn't just be a private thing that we kind of are afraid of, to your point, Trevor, and that we're slightly embarrassed of. Um, but sometimes being public with this as Christians is going to be met with the guy who said, I can't listen to this, I have to leave. And sometimes it's going to be met with the Beckett Cooks of the world who are prepared by the Holy Spirit to meet you and hear from you and be changed by the truth that you have. So in both cases, I think it's Christians being faithfully present you know, as much as they can be, but um, you never know how the response is going to be, and that's up to God. So our part is just to be faithfully present and to kind of see the beauty in Scripture and not be afraid of it and not be embarrassed by it, even though it's going to be increasingly hard. So thank you guys. Thank you, Sam and Trevin. Thank you all for being here. Um, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.